So in this ever-changing world, you know, when it comes to the woman's body, there's just always something on the table that is so controversial, so many pushbacks and so much lack of support and awareness on a global scale. So today we're talking about the reproductive justice in Guam specifically, because I have two wonderful students from UH here to join me in this conversation to talk about it and to illuminate us on the history and culture and and, and what's going on now um, in Guam. So I'm going to introduce my two lovely guests and let's hope to crack into a a culture that you may or may not know and need to learn more about. So welcome uh, Leani and Haani. Leani is a writer and teacher from Leana. Leana, sorry, <laughs> did it again. Leana is a, a writer and teacher from Dedego, Dededo, Guahan. De- is that right? Dedido, yeah. Dedido. Okay. So, see, this is so foreign to me, and I'm <laughs> grateful that you're here to um, educate me. And uh, you're you're teaching women and gender studies at. Oh, you have taught it at the University of Guam for many years, research focusing on Chamorro women and gender studies, orality, and folklore. And Haani, I'm going to let you pronounce your full name later, is a PhD student at the University of Hawaii, uh, studying Indigenous politics within the Department of Poli-Sci, and a graduate assistant teaching Introduction to Poli-Sci, presently an Introduction to Indigenous Politics uh, the semester to come. I'm right reading that wrong. My brain is like in a fog right now. I'm so sorry. And Ani is also a foundation scholar at the East West Center and part of the International Women's Group, which also I wanted to mention because the International Women's Group at the EWCPA, it, which you both represent, is also a very important uh, space to create awareness for racial gender recognition and, 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 and exploration and examining from a multicultural lens. So I appreciate you both being here, not just uh, on your knowledge and your background connected to Guam, but on a larger multicultural perspective in bringing space for us at UH here to talk about important matters uh, dealing with gender. And so thank you both of you for coming. And I'm sorry, I butchered your name already. Can you please reintroduce yourselves um, with the proper pronunciation and what else you wanna let us, a K2H audience know about you? Liana, you wanna start? Sure. Um, my name is Leana San Augustine Naholova'a, and I'm from Dedido, Guahan. And um, I'm in my second year of studying P- uh, studying uh, Pacific literature in the English uh, PhD program here at UH Manoa. And um, I've always sort of been interested in um, myths and legends mm. of Guahan, where I'm from. I, I grew up not necessarily hearing it in storytelling so much as more as reading it in um, books that were sort of geared toward children um, published by the Department of Education in Guam. Um, And so that's sort of like my my introduction into like this interest in in literature in general. Um, Currently I'm uh, involved with uh, two groups in Guam called um, Tutugi Motna, which supports literary communities in Guam, in Guahan and um, Ihagen Famalawan Guahan which is a, a women's organization. Um, and so um, these are my interests, um, certainly um, supporting the International Women's Group at the East West Center, um, protecting uh, Evie Kapuna um, here in Oahu. Um, uh, so uh, I'm also uh, one of the uh, co-editors for Turnesia, 
which is an anthology of indigenous queer Oceania. And I uh, produced a film called Mother in Guahan, um, where I interviewed um, or captured in conversation um, footage of 17 Chamorro women uh, talking about mothering in Chamorro culture in Guahan. And so those are some of my interests. Um, growing up in Guahan has been in a very in Chamorro family. Uh, my mother's side is Chamorro and my uh, father's side is um, uh, Native Hawaiian, um, Mise uh, from Okinawa. Uh, my, my grandmother had um, grown up here in Oahu and migrated to Guahan as well as my grandfather um, and met and married there. So that's where my dad and his brothers were born. Um, so I'm really here to sort of reclaim my Hawaiian heritage. I'm studying Olelo Hawaii right now, um, which has been such a restoring experience. You know, I think that um, for anyone in the diaspora um, who may feel sort of lost um, at sea, you know, in terms of their culture, um, I have to advocate for um, the studying of, of indigenous language, of your language. It, there's, there's nothing like it, but you know, years of therapy. I mean, it really just like, it, it like kind of um, overpasses all of that. You know, it just, it's so instant in terms yeah. of connecting you with your heritage and your culture and sort of part of that healing of intergenerational trauma mm. um, that you might feel. And so, um, yeah, I hope this kind of gives you a sort of overview of my life and what I'm interested in. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's loaded. There's so much there to unpack, Liana. Um, but we'll try to get to it when we have a chance. So, Ha'ani, yeah. you. thank you. Sure. Uh, thank you, Crystal, for inviting us, and especially Liana, for tapping me into this conversation. <laughs> um, Liana's been really, um, like, her work has been formative in some of my papers that I've written, because I think I'm just a a baby scholar. It's my second year in the PhD program, but I'm only 24. I just started... Wow my graduate program right after ba um, my bachelor's degrees. So I just jumped into it. Um, you are a baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like all the time. So Leanna has been really helpful like here at the East West Center and in so many aspects. So um, yeah, so I'm a second year PhD student in indigenous politics. Um, my research interests uh, began with decolonization and um, resurgence and language revitalization, especially because I did I just finished working at the Chamorro Language Commission back in Guahan. Um, I don't know if Lay said this, but Guahan is the indigenous place name for Guam. So what's contemporarily understood as Guam, but we are trying to like revitalize our language and use Guahan in that sense. So um, I just worked there and then now I moved to um, Hawaii about a month ago and I'm currently at the East West Center with Lay. Um, I'm also part of the International Women's Group and trying to um, established that here, I guess, but my research interest has slowly developed into um, Pacifica women, understanding what womanhood is, what does it mean? Um, what does decolonization have to do with um, women and also non-binary community members? Um, what else? I'm also uh, an associate producer for Deep Pacific. It's a podcast that hosts um, voices throughout the Pacific, also including the Philippines and diaspora. So we're trying to um, really be inclusive with um, all Pacifica voices. And other than that, um, for me, I am a 
a true like daughter of the Pacific. My mother's from American Samoa and my dad's from Guahan. So I've um, grown up living the island life and I know nothing else pretty much, even though I went to um, California and San Diego specifically for undergrad. But um, I feel very tied to my culture and my language, even though I don't speak it fluently. I'm still trying to learn, like Liana said. Um, but I owe a lot of myself and my research and my education to my community and bettering it in whatever ways possible. And I found that um, for me, my calling has been trying to, again, make the lives of our women better because our society was so traditionally um, women-centered and women-driven. So um, in that sense too, I'm also the advocacy and organizing director for Femalawan Rights, which is the currently the only reproductive justice initiative in Guahan. And they've been, we've been like slowly gaining traction because it's just um, six of us right now and we're all busy. One of our members just um, gave birth to her child as well. So um, we're just getting started and hopefully I can bring up that organization at the end, but For yeah, sure. a little bit about me. <laughs> wow, it's loaded. I love it. Thank you both of you for sharing. Uh, this is, Wow. You know, I know today's topic, and if you are just tuning in, we're talking about what well, we are going to talk about reproductive justice in Guahan, which is Guam, as we know it. Um, but we also need to, I think, like in anything, we need to know the context before we get to that topic, right? Why we need to talk about reproductive justice there to begin with. What is the the, the position of women in, in your culture? What is the history of Guam and how that influenced the way you were brought up as women in your culture. Um, and I wanted to maybe start with language because both of you have a very strong uh, advocacy and, and, and wanting to emphasize this. And so Haani, you said you born and bred there. Maybe you can start by talking about the language. You say you didn't grow up speaking it fluently. Is it because like, because of you know, colonialization that you know, they've suppressed the language and how much had their parents influenced the way they try to encourage the, you know, continuing of the language in, in your family. And Liana, please, uh, you know, hop in when you need to. Yeah, Liana can definitely hop in to give the uh, maybe more rich context. But for me, um, World War II is, has been like the event and a lot of like people talk about it, how, how that has shaped how the world knows Guahan. And um, it's fairly recent, you know, 1941 to 1944. And um, I feel like for my family, at least my great, or my great grandfather and my grandfather served in the military. So there's a lot of this feeling of internal like indebtedness to them. So um, that has a lot of weight in why at least my family or my grandpa was very much like pro-English learning. Um, didn't really teach my dad how to speak tomorrow, even though my dad heard it and knew it. And then um, the fact that Guahan is now a United States unincorporated territory has a lot to do with why the language is not um, thriving as much, I would say too. Um, my grandmother, she I remember when she was alive, she told me that it was very frowned upon to speak tomorrow or even have a tomorrow like dialect. So um, that transcends and goes to us as well. So the only reason that I speak a little bit or know a good amount is because I went to an immersion, a Chamorro immersion program when I was younger. So um, I can speak proficiently, but my siblings cannot. And my dad and I are kind of on the same page. So there's a lot of like intergenerational like issues there with how a lot of us, especially my generation, don't know how to speak tomorrow. And it is in large part due to um, colonization, but 
Um, yeah, we've been um, colonized first by Spain and I believe 1521, late 1400s. Um, and then since then we have not been our own independent um, nation ourselves. So we've been like, so that's why a lot of the Chamorro language today is very Spanish heavy, Spanish influence. So if you hear it's like when we count, it's like uno, dos, tres, it's the same. So um, there's a lot of layers to that, but that's for my family, it was very frowned upon back in the day. And now it's a matter of us like reclaiming our language, like what Leigh was saying. Wow, thank you. And, um, and I, you know, I, I grew up very Catholic um, on my, you know, mom's side of the family. Um, and I remember asking my grandmother who, um, who actually recently passed away, you know, like, why, why did you never teach me tomorrow? <laughs> you know, why don't I speak it? Why did you never teach me? And it's that, you know, she said something like it was easier, you know, the sense that um, her, her and her generation were assimilating or, you know, trying to sort of uh, live in this very American um, Americanized American systems, public education systems were American. Um, and what Hani was mentioning with the war, I mean, it really started with the um, handover, I guess, from Spain to the United States um, and uh, the Na U.S. Naval Administration that took over the island. Um, you, would, you soon saw um, policies that was like, you know, English only in workplaces or um, in the schools, um, young children being punished for speaking tomorrow having to do um, pay fines or just, you know, do chores or whatever. And so there's this sort of trauma around language um, that our, our elderly possess that we will never understand. Um, and, and it certainly like affected their ability to speak the language with their children who they saw as maybe needing to adapt and assimilate faster than they did. Um, and, I, I myself, am, I'm an older non-traditional student here in the PhD program, and I have memories of, you know, not really taking Chamorro in school. Like I, there was a, a sort of Chamorro language renaissance that occurred in Guam, maybe 70s, 80s, 90s, and um, as it was happening here in Hawaii as well. And, and so many of the um, folks who uh, were reviving and uh, reclaiming and restoring Chamorro language in Guahan learned a lot from uh, folks here in Hawaii. So I'm really grateful um, to them. And so, um, but, you know, talking about women's um, reproductive justice um, and, and talking about, and thinking about women's role in society, you know, it was something that was very, it caused a lot of anxiety to the original um, Jesuit missionaries who arrived in like the late 17th century with Father uh, Padre Sandra Torres who established a Catholic mission. And so much of those early accounts of Chamorro women were noticing how strong they were. And, you know, Guam in, it, in its creation story of Ponce and Fotna and many of its storytelling, you really see um, the power of women in, in, those, in their communities. Um, uh, they, it was more, very much a, a kind of egalitarian society. Um, it's a matrilineal culture. So land was passed um, in the mother's bloodline, but it was also avunculocal in nature. So it was more like um, from the mother's brother to um, the mother's son. So from like uncle to nephew, it was sort of like how um, land was passed on, according to like what anthropological accounts we have, many of which is, you know, written by colonizers. And so um, over time as, you know, and Guam is not only like one of the oldest um, communities, indigenous communities in the Pacific, um, you know, going back 3,500 years or so, 
It's also one of the earliest colonized um, with the arrival of Magellan in the 1500s, with the arrival of San Vittores in 1665 or so. And so that long history of Spanish colonization um, meant that, you know, and but for the most part, Spain um, was a little bit more hands-off in many ways that the Americans weren't. And so the language continued to survive um, in this very like, you know, margin sort of in terms of Spanish empire, you know, was very far away from its metropole. Um, there wasn't really a, a piazza kind of culture that developed. It was very much the branches we call the lanzo and the, you know, sort of Pagania um, center, capital center. And so I, there's so much I could talk about, but I'm right. sorry. I so know, I, then I we get into a history. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I apologize for straying, but what I guess what I really want to emphasize is that regardless of those hundreds of years of colonization from the Spanish and from the Americans, um, women's place in their home um, has continued to be one of strength, right? Um, you see, I mean, it's not true for all families, of course, you know, um, but for the most part, um, this strong women um, sort of figure um, continues to be part of our culture. And so when, when, the, when Roe versus Wade uh, was passed, um, you know, it was uh, several years later that a woman senator in the Guam legislature, Conception Barrett, um, kind of uh, helped enact uh, a penal code, which made it legal in Guam. So even though it was like passed in the Supreme Court or V. Wade, it, you had to sort of do things with the laws. I'm so sorry for not understanding these completely um, to make it uh, legal on demand by a physician. Mm. And, um, and so, so much of the um, abortion law history in Guahan um, is very indigenous woman focused, where indigenous women are at the center. And I really have to thank uh, Vivian Damez, who is a retired uh, professor at the University of Guam. She taught in social work um, for her research work in these areas. You can kind of find her, her um, article out there on uh, tomorrow self-determination and the politics of abortion in Guam. And so she really looks at, you know, um, the ways in which um, American religious groups sort of um, were influential in Guam's Catholic community and, and kind of uh, invigorating this sort of like pro-life um, activism. And that, but that pro-life activism was happening alongside um, self-determination activism. You know, Guam is one of, and Hani, you're more you're the political science person, so you can talk more about UN and things like that. Um, so okay, wait, there's a lot to digest here too. Yeah. I mean, all, you know, we've gotten deep already into the kind of um, views and perspectives on the body and the abortion. Um, and we're switching very quickly from the context of the, the colonial history of Guam. So I want to have people digest a little bit about what we're talking about. If you are just tuning in, um, we are talking, I am talking to um, Liana and Haani about the um, historical and cultural backdrop of Guam, um, and in perspective with women and women's bodies rights. So let's take a quick break and we come back and we're going to get more into the reproductive justice of Guam. Don't go away. Welcome back. We are continuing our conversation with Liana and Haani about the reproductive justice of Guam, but we haven't really even cracked that one yet because it's just so complicated. Um, just trying to set up the historical context of the island and uh, what the woman's position was historically and how that's kind of carried the culture down. And uh, Liana, you were really um, telling us um, 
in great detail about the the history and how the women held that matrilineal matrilineal is that maternal kind of matrilineal yes okay. matrilineal. So matriarchal kind of society back then and and you know the the power and the perseverance of of women's place in in the family and cultures and you know there's always that lingering question that people like to ask is does culture pass down through the woman you know does it pass down through the woman's body, you know, how does it pass down? We talk about indigenous culture and passing down through uh, storytelling, you know, orality as you have studied um, and, and what gets lost in that passing down. And, and you were talking about language earlier and how you were deprived of it historically because of the erasure of the culture intentionally from colonists. And so, you know, again, to add that all on our plate to talk about women's body rights, how does that, play into it. Maybe we can kind of start from there. Maybe I could quickly just, I'll share what I'm feeling. Um, so from like what Lay's written about and what other scholars have written about, I, and my own experience, I feel like women are so strong for reasons that we don't need to explain, like it's very inherent and natural, but I feel like with colonization and, you know, other factors like um, heteronormativity and things like that, this idea of what a woman is in Chamorro culture is now so heavy. And it's like what you were saying. So it's not only that you have the burden of if you want to raise a family, but also that you have to perform being like biologically reproductive. So, um, and there's so many layers to that too, because then you become, I guess, everyone looks towards you as um, perpetuating culture in so many ways. So not only do you have to do what I just said, but you have to cook, you have to teach them tomorrow, you have to everything and everything. So there's so much responsibility being refocused on women when it shouldn't, it was never always like that, right? So it's been reshaped in so many ways. Um, so that's how I think it plays um, into how women view themselves today in tomorrow culture. So I feel that sometimes it's like with a heavy heart that um, there's a lot of things that my mom has told me that, you know, it's just stuff we deal with as women. That's what like kind of just like yeah, it has to be done. And I really fight against that because it's like it shouldn't be like this. There are things that shouldn't have to play out for me to be a woman. And there's certain experiences that are marked as tomorrow womanhood or tomorrow women experiences, but it shouldn't be that way. So that's how I think we can like bring it into today's context of why. Um, bodily autonomy specifically for women is so important because um, since women hold so much value in Chamorro culture, um, bodily sovereignty also means like national sovereignty. So they're so intimately connected in so many ways. So you can't just um, fight for, for example, Chamorro liberation without speaking about liberation for women. And that also extends, you know, children and other marginalized groups. So it really, again, goes back to how we treat our women and what that says about us. Can you give a little more of a specific example of what you meant by like, uh, you know, the ways that Chamorro women uh, enact, if you will, you know, certain traditions and, and expectations that as, as opposed to how things are done now in a colonized world? Mm. I think maybe Lay could um, speak more on that, but what I... Uh, like what she was mentioning in like a matrilineal society. Um, I remember reading um, Dr. Laura Souter's book. And the one thing that I remember of uh, Daughters of the Island, it was about tomorrow women. And I think one historical piece that she mentioned was that in ancient 
society when a wrong was done to the wife by the husband, um, they ostracized him and they really valued what the woman said instead of nowadays, right? It's like, um, whatever the man says is the end all be all, but they really brought the woman into community and um, sat her down and talked with her and like, is this what's happening and what everything. So they really valued the woman's voice in that sense. But I think, um, and I'm not speaking for ultramoral women because this may not be the, the case in their lives and experiences, but um, within conversations I've had, it seems like they feel muted, whereas before they would have so much power in their voice. So um, that's just one example, but I feel like they may know <laughs> something more solid. Yeah, and I think that, um... What, what Hani was mentioning with the historical accounts, I remember also this sense that um, a, a, a man doing something, a misdeed was sort of like off on his own. Um, whereas a woman um, had, had always had her whole family, her whole clan behind her. So any kind of attack on him versus attack on her, um, he kind of had to sort of defend himself where she always had like the protection of her community. And with, so with that comes a sort of really heavy responsibility, um, especially for women in, in Guahan today. Um, just, you know, sort of the things you kind of hear probably here in Hawaii as well, just the obligations to your family, um, you know, the need to always be there. You sometimes see this in um, stopout rates in college. Um, you know, there might be a high stopout rate among uh, Chamorro women students. Because when, when the needs of the family, you know, they're, they're sort of pulled away from their own studies, you know, mm -hmm. because they, they, they have to show up in so many ways. And so that pressure and that heavy burden is definitely um, both indigenous and colonial, I guess, um, in the sense that, you know, women have to do the work of their work and the work of being a student and the work of the home, you know, like their, you know, work needs to be shared. Um, Can and I then ask also, a question on that? Sorry, I don't mean sure. to no, but sure. that just gives me, um, you know, so uh, the idea of the lack of representation of Indigenous students, um, not just at UH, but in, in many places, but pertaining to here specifically, you know, there's been kind of a, an increasing voicing of this lack of representation. And I'm wondering when you're saying that, whether um, how much we have to take in consideration the culture aspect of like, for example, uh, in, in Chamorro families, maybe there is that expectation and cultural pressures of doing things within the home that uh, disallow for opportunities to have educational advancements um, and not necessarily because the institution is not providing that diversity and the opportunities. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's easy to, yeah, kind of like attack, yeah. but to understand and, that. And, and so even though women tend to have these kinds of burdens, they're still represented higher in college, including in Guam, more more graduates are women identified versus men, you know, and so, but it's like, we have to understand that they have so much adversity in it, in all the, in everything they achieve, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's so much more sexism they have to deal with, so much more obligations and family pressures they have to deal with, so much um, marginalization. So, I mean, I, I think here at UH, um, I, I don't quite know the full context, um, but it's, it's certainly it's certainly needed that um, more indigenous students are needed on this campus. Okay, uh, I, you know, and so um, I know I know I, I, our conversation today is is focused on reproductive health and and so forth. And I guess the thing I want to say is that um, 
what Vivian Damas has talked about in her work is that when we see this sort of like transition into like a kind of modern economy, modernity in Guahan, you know, you have a lot of Chamorro women um, studying in the US um, in terms of college and, and their exposure to second wave women's movements, you know, and things like that. And then sort of bringing these ideas back home, you know, they're seen as foreign. Um, whereas in actuality, they're really returning us to many of our indigenous ways of being in terms of having uh, authority and rights over our own bodies. Um, uh, Dr. Anne Kobatsky is um, in the news a lot in Wuhan um, because of the pandemic. She's an epidemiologist, um, but her um, sort of thesis work in the past is on uh, Sir Hana's women herbalist in Wuhan. And so there's this indigenous healing traditions um, in Guahan and certainly here in Hawaii. And um, uh, in her interviews with um, what they were known then as Surahanas were kind of reclaiming um, Hinojadas as sort of like non-Spanish kind of language. And so we refer to our traditional healers as Do'amti. And so- um, What is the term? Do'amti, uh, do <laughs> I, I can spell it for you. It's, I, Learning, I'm trying to learn. Okay. Y-O-Lota, right? A with the- can you both speak to each other in um, conversational Chamorro? Like, is that a natural thing you would want I, to do? I do. I'm, I'm still a baby learner in Chamorro language. Uh, as I was mentioning earlier, like um, we had these renaissance of Chamorro language um, teaching, but I sort of missed the boat on that. And many, many people of my generation and younger, um, even though we may not have the language, you know, they're making sure that their children learn. And I see that in Hawaii as well. Like my yes. cousins here in Hawaii may not be studying Alelo Hawaii, but they're making sure their children are studying it. And I think, you know, it's the moving forward. We just have to fill all the gaps in adult learning as well as uh, learning of children. And New Age does to. offer Chamorin, do they? Yes, it does. It's the right. only uh, university outside of the Mariana Islands that does. That's great. And I do see that slow, as you had mentioned, slow um, impact, it's taking baby steps, but it is moving in that direction of reclaiming indigenous language and culture. And that's why we're here again. So if you're just tuning in, again, we really are trying to tap into this idea that the, you know, the issue of reproductive justice, and I promise we'll get to it. So we'll, let's take one more break, we'll come back and we are going to go right into it, promise. Right, reproductive justice in Guahan with Oleana and Haani here. All right, so <laughs> how do we unpack this one? What are, okay, so what are the, um, what are the, the issues today? What are the legal rights today in Guam for a woman to have an abortion? Let me just ask that question. Mm, okay, so um, briefly talking about the piece Leanna brought up by uh, Vivian Damas, um, it's important to know that uh, Chamorro cult culture is um, very Catholic nowadays. So um, because of Spanish colonialism, we've absorbed a lot of those practices and beliefs. So there's a strong sense, especially among our Manamco, our elders, that, um, you know, Catholic understandings of like save the fetus or um, protect the womb and things like that become ingrained in Chamorro culture. So um, I know that when Roe v. Wade happened and they were trying to, um, and I'm sorry again that I have all the dates, but it's like escaping me right now. But um, I know in maybe the late 
70s following Roe v. Wade, uh, there was a senator who actually was very Catholic, but introduced legislation that at the time was considered the uh, most severe abortion ban in the whole United States. Um, and that and that was actually, when it was passed, was contentious because, uh, even more so because her daughter was, her daughter was a senator, or sorry, was a legislator and was going against her in court. I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> I can I can speak to this yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit yeah. more. So, um, and I I was you know around when the 1990 abortion ban occurred in Guam. So as I was telling you earlier, um, uh, you know, religious groups in the United States were kind of uh, collaborating with uh, the Catholic community in Guam and kind of created this pro-life movement there. And it was occurring at the same time that Guam was really um, thinking about self-determination you know, choosing its political status. Uh, you know, Guam is one of, uh, one of a long list of countries after World War II that needed to decolonize uh, according to the United Nations Charter. And so um, that, that, like, so this Chamorro Renaissance was occurring and Chamorro um, nation building and uh, uh, thinking about sovereignty, those kinds of things. And so part of that was like kind of uh, the Chamorro Catholic community wanting to differentiate themselves from the United States community of, of and that made a uh, pro-choice uh, abortion legal. And so, you know, not wanting to be imposed by U.S. law when it came to the abortion issue. Like, we are a Catholic community. We can decide for ourselves. We don't agree with that. And so it was this, you know, kind of bizarre political thing happening. And so um, what happened was that Senator Elizabeth Areola, Areola who's affectionately known as Bell Areola, um, she um, uh, put forward this bill that was eventually signed by the governor at the time that made abortion illegal completely. Like up until that moment, um, there was sort of like chiseling away of abortion rights with the Hyde Amendment in 1977, I think, that you, know, you couldn't use Medicaid money to pay for that and like the parental notification rights, like gradually over time, whereas in 1990, it was like straight up banned. I mean, I remember like, you know, you never see Guam really in the news. And all of a sudden it was like such international attention, national attention, clearly. It lasted for four days um, because uh, ACLU uh, lent its support to Guahan. Um, uh, uh, Senator Elizabeth Ariola's daughter, daughter um, what's her name? I'm sorry, forgetting her name. This, this is, Anita. This, Anita Ariola, so I'm sorry. Um, she um, was on the other side of this abortion debate. So you had this like mother-daughter huh. um, debate going on and um, our current uh, governor of Guam is a woman, first woman governor, um, Lilian Garo. At the time, she was the sort of president of the sort of nurses association in Guam. So it was a very small community of indigenous women who were um, opposing this Guam's large Catholic community, um, you know, uh, fighting for abortion rights. And, and so that's sort of the situation um, when it comes to history. Um, at least, at least, and you know, I think about uh, Hawaii history, which I'm sort of just learning in 1970, abortion sort of became legal here before Roe v. Wade. Um, and my understanding that wasn't necessarily an indigenous women's movement, whereas in Guam, there are more indigenous women involved. So when you say indigenous women's movement, like, and it's so small com compared to the relatively larger Catholic influenced um, communities what where where did this group emerge from was it a younger generation of educated women um, was it influenced by the what was going on 
kind of on the larger national context, you know, how did this movement kind of spur its, its intrusion into like fighting that abortion? Well, in 1990, you, di- you didn't need to be like stateside educated to want to have ownership over your own body. But certainly um, when it came to speaking out in public, um, there was more public um, support for the pro-life movement and less for the pro-choice movement. This is something that I hear people in, uh, from that time saying that, you know, they uh, got, um, you know, messages of support from people, but not necessarily out of the open. Um, and so indigenous women were at the center of both sides of this debate is, is sort of like what I was saying. So, you know, so that those values of prioritizing the family, those values of uh, being connected to your faith, you know, those are all values that indigenous women hold, more women hold. Um, but when it comes to um, being pro-choice, you know, um, there's a lot of misconceptions around that. Um, you know, certainly Guam is on the Western Pacific and there are many Asian countries uh, who, where abortion is illegal, but it's sort of an open secret um, that you could eat, that you get an abortion from a doctor um, in a hospital, you know, pay them under the table. But then in those instances, there's no regulation. And so it's so important to have for abortion to be safe and legal, you know, and um, that's something that we really want to emphasize. Yeah. Um, and, now, yeah. and nowadays we don't have an abortion provider. The last one um, retired. And so uh, women have to travel off island and that's very economically uh, impossible for many women. And Hani can speak more to this. Yeah, no, this is huge. This is where we really want to go. The fact that there is no abortion doctor, legal, accepted, whatever, in Guam right now is is a crucial. It's just so, you know, we take so for granted the, the, the powers we have in our bodies in where we live and mm-hmm. And we can't not talk about what's going on in Texas at the same time, like where right. things are going with the control over our bodies. So um, maybe, Ha'ani, can you just maybe back up a little and tell us about this, this situation and the cases that are evolved around sure. it? Yeah, and thanks, Leigh. Sorry about that. Someone was calling me. But um, again, following Roe v. Wade, abortion was then, um, I believe a, there's a 1993 case in Guahan. Um, it was legalized, but it was one of those things where it was legal on paper, but it was very hush-hush, still like taboo to even go and get one. But there was a women's clinic and it was called the Women's Clinic in Wuhan that offered abortion services um, until 2016 to 2018 with Dr. William Freeman. He was the sole provider at that time. Um, And even then there were a lot of Catholic groups um, protesting all the time. So it was very hard to not only go through that process of having an abortion, but to know that when you would go to the clinic itself, it was at the time that there would be folks there um, booing you or protesting at the front makes it also like it wrenches at my heart because it's so uncomfortable on so many levels, but just to add that is even more um, uncomfortable. Um, so then uh, Dr. Freeman retires in 2018 and um, his predecessor does not want to continue um, offering that service, although he can. So. Um, since 2018, it's legal in Guahan to have it, but um, no one's offering it, and for so many different reasons, right? And then, um, as I was mentioning off camera to Leanna, uh, the pandemic hit last year, and no one was able to go to clinics. They were limiting who was able to go in. And there's two laws uh, for the abortion mandate in Guahan, which is um, 
one, that the abortion needs to be done in a clinic or in a hospital under the physician provider. And the second one is that you need to have um, a preliminary appointment with them in the clinic as well. So two-step thing. And both were impossible at that point in the pandemic. So um, I believe it's Dr. Bliss Keneshiro, who's licensed to practice here in Guahan and um, in Hawaii, and another uh, provider. We're trying to offer telemedical abortion in the island as a service to the people. And um, they were being told they couldn't because um, they couldn't do it in the hospital and they weren't there in person. So then um, with attorney Vanessa Williams of the ACLU, they are suing the government of Guam for blocking access to telemedical abortion. So that's kind of where we are at right now. Um, and that happened last year. So in March, they actually uh, reached a settlement that said that, okay, um, now you don't have to um, have that consult done in person. You could actually do the consult via telemedicine. And then in September, so earlier this month, I believe they, uh, you know, there's a lot of legal jargon and everything, but it's still in the process of ensuring that at least telemedical abortion can be offered. So um, another layer of that issue is that um, for telemedical abortions, you need two drugs uh, to have the efficacy um, at its highest, but one is not readily administered in Wuhan. Uh, you need like to go through so many legal paperwork just to have it. So um, there's so many <laughs> difficulties that we're trying to get through and it's just um, more difficult to um, even opt in to have an abortion procedure. So as Leanna said, um, the option that a lot of women talk about or that we know of is to fly to Hawaii to have an abortion done here. But then I know um, even with Planned Parenthood, they're very backed up in a lot of their... Um, appointments, not just for abortion, but for reproductive health altogether. So not only do you have to pay the like almost $2,000 ticket to and from the island, but you have to pay for your housing, your lodging. I'm um, now with the pandemic. I don't know how um, flying is and everything. So it's just so difficult. Oh, so difficult. There's so many, it's so complex and wow. I, I mentioned traditional medicine earlier and I apologize for not continuing that thought, but Basically, it's in um, indigenous healers practices that um, they have uh, helped women have abortions, um, you know, and, and even in, in our region, um, and but she talks about this in her work, um, also in Yap and Chuk, other islands in Micronesia, um, documented practices by indigenous healers using traditional medicines to induce abortion. And you so mean it herbs, is, it, like just herbs that they... Right, right. Um, um, okay. Different different methods. Um, okay. And so... So that's part of our indigeneity. And yet we have this, you know, kind of Catholic um, influence that's very patriarchal. Um, and and Hani was mentioning with, um, with the flying to Hawaii. I mean, if there's like 28 facilities here, I think, that provide abortions here in Hawaii. Um, and if, if it was made illegal here, um, you could fly to the continent for, I don't know, $300 if you get a good deal. Certainly, if you're in Texas, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of the um, information for folks, you know, they, they uh, Planned Parenthood is helping um, women uh, understand what financial resources are available to them, as well as other things to go out of state for an abortion. And, you know, I mentioned self-determination in Guahan because I, I don't know much about Texas, but I do remember talking to a Texan once when I was there for work, you know, that it's in their constitution or state constitution or charter that they can secede from the union at any moment. And I feel that helps me understand a lot of like Texan pride 
you know, um, is that having that ability to kind of remove themselves from the United States whenever they want. I don't know if this is true or not, but I really relate to that in the sense of, of Guam's decolonization, you know, um, wanting to have independence, wanting to have uh, a say in, in how your community uh, operates. And so these are sort of the linkages between these three locations. And I can't help but think how we're going backwards in so many ways. And you talk about Roe versus Wade and what has changed or not and where we're hit, where we're, we're moving towards. And it's very frightening and it's really disturbing. Um, can we just take one more break so we can just digest the significance of the lack of rights women have in Guam for abortions and, and, and Texas and, and in many places in the world and come back with hopefully a more positive, constructive way of thinking about how we move forward um, in addressing our bodies. Returning to our critical conversations about reproductive justice in Guam and many places in the nation and the world and how women's bodies are always still being kind of, you know, policed by men and institutions and, and so much. And it's just, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just feel so sad right now. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that and how we can heal. You know, uh, Liana, you had mentioned, you know, indigenous healing and even that as a form of, of, of treatment for abortion. Maybe can we use this concept of indigeneity to, to approach this topic? Um, to embody the different ways of knowing and to challenge the ways in which societies have been educated to and structured to believe in the ways we should be handling our bodies. If that makes any sense. Yes. And when we think about indigenous medicine, traditional herbal medicine, you know, a lot of it has to do with access as much as all the other cultural barriers that are in place, you know, um, actual access to these plants um, that, that are used as medicine. You know, militarization in Guam has been a huge factor in um, sort of diminishing um, the work of uh, indigenous healers in Guam. You know, um, uh, commercialization, uh, toxins in the land, um, as well as just the hardship of, you know, these practices being passed on to the next generation, their interests in it or not. Um, but uh, certainly um, there's hope, you know, many in the community are reviving these traditions, studying it, um, embracing it. And um, Haani is doing such amazing work um, with others with Famalan rights. And I, I really just would like to learn more about their work. I'm so yeah, proud of tell them. Us, maybe that's a good place to tell us about that. Oh, thank you. So um, the story of Famalan rights, so Famalan means woman, um, and so women's rights um, starts with what we were just talking about in the last segment, uh, recognizing that we had no abortion providers in Guahan. Um, and also in 2019, um, a lot of us were shaken by the story of this 12 year old um, girl who was raped and impregnated by her assailant. And um, we don't know much more other than the fact that um, she could not readily get an abortion if she wanted to. Um, and we don't know the, the full story after the fact, but. Um, Two women who are the founders of our organization were very heavily impacted by that, as were many of us, and they felt compelled to create an initiative because there had been none at this point, um, specifically advocating for more um, reproductive rights for our women in Guahan. So I think there's something inherently indigenous about it because there's um, six of us who are 
um, on the board right now, or we're the directors, but we're not all Chamorro per se, but um, what's more indigenous than women creating alliances and building and kind of weaving our stories together um, to create change. So at this point in time, we're in like our solidarity and relationship building um, steps in our organization. So still reaching out and still trying to um, get voice for our cause. Um, we've actually spoken with our governor, Lulian Guerrero, in some segments um, recently. And we're just trying to reach out with leaders and um, other community members to see how we can create change and better, not only the lives of women in Guahan, but you know, in extended regions throughout Oceania. So um, I'm trying at this point, because I'm the advocacy and organizing director, I'm trying to pull in um, community members and other organizations in the Pacific, because I think it's so important that um, we create a shared voice in that endeavor. But um, yeah, that's basically what that organization is and what I'm a part of, and I'm really passionate about it. And um, I'm hoping we can gain more traction, but our biggest thing right now is supporting that ACLU case and just um, receiving um, voices from the community and giving that to uh, attorney Vanessa Williams. And hopefully uh, with this podcast, uh, your show, um, generating more consciousness about the issue and our organization too. How much support uh, are you getting from both uh, the you know communities in Guahan as well as the larger um, societies? In- right, so we've had, um, We've done talks at the University of Guam. We've um, met with organizations locally, but also we're recognized by ACLU, Catholics for Choice, um, other larger uh, Gutmacher Institute, I believe. So um, it's been really um, heartwarming to see that our cause has been um, talked about in so many uh, different spaces. Um, our One of our founders, um, Maria Dolohan, actually published an op-ed in Teen Vogue too. So we've had like different um, spaces we're trying to generate consciousness in. So it's been really nice with that. Yeah. Um, I'm, this, this, this brings me to think about Liana's um, documentary that you had done uh, years back on women of Guahan, but I mean, mothering, sorry, excuse me, and and how that's actually relevant. And if you pull into this idea of the woman's body and, um, you know, tapping into the connections of, of female bodies and what, what the, the consequences of patriarchal control are that manifest in, in ways like this and the structures that come um, is just, you know, it, it, it's not a small issue. And I don't know how we can raise awareness on a larger scale to recognize the importance of these rights. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Liana. Yeah, so much of, of uh, the situation is very classist, you know, um, uh, women in poverty, women without economic means um, are being prevented from accessing safe and legal abortions. Um, you know, the even before Roe v. Wade um, was enacted, like, you know, women who were wealthy could easily get abortions, you know, women who could travel from Guam to Hawaii and, um, you know, easily pay $2,000, like nothing, you know, this is, this doesn't pertain to them. You know what I mean? We are trying to protect the most vulnerable, um, those who have been, um, are survivors of sexual violence, um, uh, you know, sexual abuse, especially as minors. Um, there's a, a march happening this uh, coming weekend, October 2nd at 9 a.m. at the state capitol um, in Honolulu, uh, sort of like to, for reproductive health care for all women. And so I hope people can attend that march. 
um, I think that I, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but um, but certainly I think uh, this issue, the, the big one of the big misconceptions about abortion is that a certain age group or demographic um, gets these procedures. And, and I, I haven't looked at any recent data, but as far as I know, a large uh, majority are actual mothers, um, women who already have kids who can't have another kid um, because they don't have the, the resources and support from their own community, their own families, and especially the government, state, you know, local state, federal government. I mean, their women are not supportive with, supported with um, uh, resources they need for to take time away from work. Um, it is a huge economic burden. And so we really need to look at these misconceptions of who, who, um, who is accessing these procedures. That's a really good point because it's just uh, too easy to kind of um, pigeonhole the, yep. the reasons for it. And I think that's what people write off on, right? You know, to, to get the rights and the laws passed. Um, can you remind us of the, the, this, the details of this upcoming March and uh, Haani also to remind us of the site and the organization that you had helped co-create so that people have access to knowing how to support. Um, if you go to act.womensmarch.com, um, it'll require you to enter your zip code and you'll see that the women's, uh, the Reproductive March is happening um, on Saturday, August, October 2nd at 9 a.m. at okay. the state capitol. Great, thank you. Yeah. And, um, well, yeah, thank you. So if you wanna follow um, Family Law and Rights pages, it's familylawandrights.org, that's our website. Family Law and Rights is our handle for um, Instagram. And then it's just Family Law and Right without the S for Twitter because it would cap us. So um, yeah, you can find us on Twitter, on Instagram and our website. How does it feel to be involved with that when you're in Hawaii and you know doing something for the uh, the specific communities in in Guahan? Is that is that a difficult thing, or is that actually good that you have access to um, the support here to to bring that up? Right. I feel that um, I've spoken with a lot of um, friends I've made here, especially Kanakamali friends, and so when I tell them about my, uh, this organization I'm part of and my research interests, uh, they feel kind of like this connection with me. They never knew a lot of the stories I shared. So like what Liana was saying, how a lot of Chamorro women have to travel to Hawaii and that's how we know Hawaii. It's so intimate. They never knew that. So um, I feel like it's, kind of, it's not difficult to connect with like my organization back home, but it's more so like illuminating because I get to share our story and a lot of people learn about it in that way. So. Um, it's been really nice. And also um, our members are scattered throughout. Um, so some are in Guahan, one's in New York, and one is in Portland right now, I believe. So we're all across the world. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's great. Um, can I, I would love to have both of you leave us with some um, thoughts, images, could be little small details of, uh, of Guahan culture or women's um, if you have a small story or an image or a, a memory of something that you would like to leave us with or something you want to share. As it relates to this topic, you know, and, and so much of our history around the abortion, 1990 abortion law, you know, being a kind of conflict between mother and daughter, um, that was also a driving force for um, many women doing this kind of work is, you know, wanting to protect, you know, I just... I got a text from my cousin earlier, you know, she wants to protect the, 
her daughter's womb, you know, it becomes so much larger than us. And, you know, even though the women in our family may not agree with us on these topics, you know, we, we, we do appreciate their current concern. And so, you know, so much of this work is for the future generations. And it's across many decades, the abortion, the Roe v. Wade abortion law has been diminished. And we really need to restore um, not only women's rights over their bodies, but access to all kinds of things regarding education, workplace, fairness in the home and the work being done in the home with their partners. So um, that's something I, I think about a lot lately. Thank you. Yeah, mine's similar to yours, like kind of like the generational and family aspect. So um, I grew up in a very Catholic household um, for many generations. And my mother, who's Samoan, was also um, very active in the church. So when I um, joined this organization, it was very obvious that I was doing talks like in the local news and um, doing outreach that she was going to learn about it. And I was also conflicted with sharing that information with her, um, not because she would um, feel any less for me emotionally as her daughter, but just like what we were talking about that case, there's so many different um, contentions and, you know, issues, and I didn't want to bring that into our relationship. But when I told her what I did, she was so openly proud of me. She shares it on her uh, Facebook account. She talks about it. And I was fearful because I didn't want anyone to, like, attack her in church, like, within her community. But she told me, you know, she didn't care, and she was very um, supportive of me and what I do. So it just goes to show that, you know, old dogs can learn new tricks in that way. Um, and even though uh, most of our elders are stubborn, they'll listen and they'll learn. So um, even if it's over a long period of time. So that's something that was really heartwarming for me because a lot of um, children who I've spoken to, like in high schools, they ask, how do we even talk about this with our family members who are so very obviously against this issue? And I tell them like, it's very cliche, but you just have to start that conversation because you never know how they're gonna react. So I think that's something for us to uh, look forward to just like the hopefulness in our community. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I have a teenage daughter and I think about the, the ways in which the younger generation talk about gender, for example, you know, it's dismantled these whole concepts of binaries in such a normative way now that there is hope to really challenge the system because the language around this has changed. And um, I do believe that. And I think, Laana, I loved your um, idea of for the intergenerational aspect is to, you know, to protect your daughter's womb. That's like, it's just, you're, you're thinking beyond your initial values, whatever that shaped it from the larger structures. And then it becomes personal. Then it becomes just, you know, we're embodying these, these very, very deep, important reasons for living and how we conduct our lives. So I just can't thank you both enough for sharing both the history, the cultural influences, the women's position in Guahan and, and your thoughts and, and just um, updating and educating us on what the situation of the uh, abortion rights are in Guam is right now. And I really, really appreciate. Thank you both of you so much. This is Liana and Ha'ani.